I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting. But Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. When you want to have fun and have scratchers to scratch, there's a playful way you can do just that. Scratch with the key or acrylic nail. Scratch with the quill from a porcupine tail. Use a belt buckle from your friend Lamar. Or scratch with your pick while you play guitar. You can scratch in a bunch of different playful ways. Scratchers from the California lottery. A little play can make your day. Please play responsibly. Must be 18 years or older to purchase player claim. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. Hello, Internet, and welcome to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. And each week we will have a special guest that will bring with them a movie that traumatized them as a kid. This week, the special guest is us. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really wild that we are here, Mary, because... um. For me, from my perspective, this whole thing kind of started on a lark. I was having like a, a tweet conversation, a, a tweet versation. No, 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 no. That's, that's silly. That's dumb. But we were talking about movies that scared us um, with a bunch of people. And I brought up a movie that we're going to be talking about tonight. And it, then it just hit me that it'd make kind of an interesting podcast. And I are, retweeted it and everyone started coming out of the woodwork. And then you came out. And I get this little tweet that said, you've been planning to do this for like what? Two years? Two or three years, yeah. I had the idea and I just wanted to interview like family members. This was before I was really active on Twitter. And so this was a podcast that I'd kind of started really planning and thinking about. And then just, 
you know, planning a podcast by yourself is really hard. It's hard mm-hmm. to have the kind of the discipline and have someone to motivate you to do it. It's just yourself. So I never got around to doing it. But when I saw you tweet that, I thought, all right, um, fate, we have to do this. Yeah. Um, it's like kismet. I know, exactly. And here we are recording our first episode. I know. I'm so excited and a little nervous. I'm not going to lie. But uh, so um, you might know me um, on Twitter. I'm I'm Gaily Dreadful. I run the website GailyDreadful.com. I guess like my favorite horror movies, um, some of the ones that I grew up with, like A Nightmare on Elm Street is probably one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, and then more recently, uh, I would say Hereditary just kind of came yeah. out and knocked me on my ass. Um, but, but what about you, Mary Beth? So I'm Mary Beth McAndrews. I am MB McAndrews on Twitter. I write all for all sorts of places. Um, you're everywhere. I I do a lot of writing, um, but most, um, I'm mostly at much ado about cinema and nightmare on film street with, um, other bylines scattered throughout. I write a lot about gender and horror, some of my favorite. So I, I constantly write about 30 days of night, which is my go-to kind of horror movie to champion. Um, it's my favorite vampire movie. I'm very into vampire movies and that's like my go-to, but my other favorite actually is hereditary. <laughs> and that's probably why we're doing this together. Hereditary really Twinsies. also did not knock me on my ass when I first saw it. And, um, I'm not going to say elevated horror, but I think it really proved like kind of showcased like what you can do in a mainstream horror kind of market. Um, and plus, Tony Collette is my queen forever. So. Oh my gosh, me too. <laughs> so yeah, those are it's kind of like a very brief intro into who I am. I think it's interesting that you bring up Thirty Days of Night because I haven't seen that movie probably since theater, but I, I think I, I need to go revisit it. I mean, like I revisit it, I revisit it every year, and like I definitely know it has its problems with the pacing and some of mm-hmm. the story, but like. I think I don't care, which is fine. And I think I can totally understand why people don't like it. But for some reason, it just like really struck a chord with me when I was, when I first saw it um, a long time ago. And so I just like will champion it forever. And I think it's way, it's shot beautifully. And I think it's way better than a lot of people give it credit for. I, there's, there's one scene in particular that I do remember from that movie and it's like a overhead panning shot of like the, the attack on the town. Yes. That's like the, that and the fact that it takes place in Alaska where I lived for eight years when I was oh, a kid really? growing up. Yeah. Not as far north. So it wasn't <laughs> like that kind of crazy darkness, but, yeah. but yeah. So like, I, I, I should, I'm going to write that down. I should go revisit that one. Um, and then I know you just came back from TIFF. We've, we've both been at, at festivals and stuff. Yeah. Um, what, what, what are movies you think uh, our listeners should be keeping an eye on in the future? That's a very good question. So I saw a lot of really great movies there, but there were, um, I think, two that people probably haven't really heard of. I saw The Vast of Night, but I feel like a lot of people have heard about how great that movie is. And mm-hmm. I mean, I'm joining the bandwagon of that being a phenomenal film, um, a beautifully, beautifully shot film reminiscent of the twilight zone mm. but two films that i really want to like would really want to like people tell people to watch out for are color out of space which i'll know a lot of people are excited for richard stanley's newest film his i can't wait triumphant return to horror with nicholas cage and this lovecraft adaptation that is absolutely batshit crazy and i absolutely loved it it's weird it's colorful it's gory it's just 
a wild ride and it's the way a Lovecraft adaptation should be. I love H.P. Lovecraft stories despite him being a horrific racist. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's, he's problematic for sure, but yeah. I, I'm, I'm with you on, on that. I just, I think he creates really good horror stories. And I think there have been a lot of interesting ways to adapt his work that haven't always been very successful, mm-hmm. but this does a really good job adapting his work, not just in the kind of monstrosity aspect, but in the madness, crazy aspect. Yeah. And I think it helps that every performer is just going absolutely balls to the wall, bad shit. <laughs> um, it's an absolute wild ride. So that is one you really need to look out for. And then the vigil. Ooh, the vigil. I haven't heard about this one. So the vigil is one I don't think as many people have heard about. Um, Midnight Madness this year was programmed. P- Peter Kopalski is the programmer for Midnight Madness, and he did a really amazing job of programming films that were by new directors from places and cultures that hadn't really been represented before. And so The Vigil is one of those films. The Vigil is, I apologize for my cat, everybody. Um, <laughs> the Vigil Kitty. is a film um, about it's a possession film, but it takes place in the Hasidic Jewish community oh. in New York City and Brooklyn. And so basically it's the possession film we've seen, but in a totally different culture. It's not Catholic imagery, iconography, a sad priest. It's a um, a young a young man who has left the Hasidic Jewish faith due to trauma and he is brought back to be a shomer, someone who looks over the body of the dead before they're buried and it kind of goes absolutely haywire. So it's a demon film, but not Catholic. And I think that's really important and shows that, Hey, Catholics don't just don't have to have a monopoly on horror, on religious horror film. And it was scary. It was beautiful. It was well acted and it was fascinating. And it like kind of shows you don't need to just rely on Catholicism for horror. And like, just because you don't know anything about Hasidic Jewish culture the community doesn't mean you can't make a film that's effective for all audiences, which I think is an important message. Like I just really enjoyed it. It kind of, it kind of goes to the, the idea of diversity in filmmaking. You get, yeah. you get stories that you normally wouldn't ever see. Like, I think that that sounds absolutely fantastic. Cause um, I, I'm kind of, I'm over most of the, uh, the Catholic Christian yes. possession movies. Cause they all have the same similar beats and I remember watching The Wailing, the uh, the Korean film. Oh yes, I love The Wailing. And it, it just this just kind of brought that back to mind because of the the idea, like uh, just seeing their kind of ways that they would do an exorcism in a completely different culture and a different religion. I thought that so that that's that's fascinating. I'm gonna have to add that to my list. Yeah, definitely. I'm not sure. I don't know anything about distribution yet, but I'm hoping it'll get picked up. It seems like the perfect movie for Shutter to pick up. So I'm mm-hmm. hoping that happens um so enough about me what have you seen terry recently i know you've been doing a lot of coverage of festivals and new releases so what do you what has been like stuck out to you recently two um i'm gonna go with two as well okay the first one I th- i'm pretty sure i think i saw in letterboxd you've seen it as well but we haven't really talked about it and that's synchronic oh god yes the new justin benson and aaron moorhead picture they of course have done resolution and spring and the endless and i i i'm not gonna lie i'm a fanboy i have oh, I'm loved, a huge i'm a huge fanboy of them yeah, too. i i have loved them ever since i caught resolution on a i was doing a 31 days of horror october screening and i was like i've not seen this one i'm just gonna flip this one on and i just i've been a fan ever since i think that synchronic is it's kind of hard to talk about without really getting into spoilers, yeah. but it's about this drug that is found on the market 
and these two paramedics that keep coming to crime scenes and finding this this drug at it and really really bizarre bizarre crime scenes like someone stabbed with a sword that's partially dissolved someone else looks like they spontaneously combusted and so they find out that this drug is involved and then it just sort of goes from there but if if you know if you know more head and benson films you kind of know that it's going to try to pull the rug out from under you but it's also going to be dealing with a lot of more philosophical, more human emotions. And I, I think I, I've seen a couple of reviews out there that have kind of like slammed it on the, the sci-fi element. But I think that if you're just looking at it in sci-fi, you're not really doing the film justice. Well, exactly. And I think what they do really well is doing these really interesting marriages of sci-fi and brotherhood um, mm-hmm. and emotional, like very emotional storytelling that uses sci-fi as like a background for more emotional stories. And I think that this film is ambitious for them. It's the first time they've had a bigger budget. They oh, have huge. stars. They have Anthony Mackie. They have Jamie Dornan. Who's cute. And- which one? <laughs> I think they're both cute, but yes. I am I, I do I, I am very attracted to Jamie. And this is like the first time I've ever seen him give a performance that wasn't like a beautiful mannequin with nothing going on. <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um and it's just it was I think this is a really good example of giving talented indie horror sci-fi filmmakers a budget and a chance and seeing that like what they can do and you know, I don't think it's perfect, but no. I'm, like again, I think it's just ambitious, and I think it's it's it stays true to who they are as filmmakers, which I am really happy about too. Well, so, and I think yeah. I think you can kind of see their evolution. I yeah, you know, for I sure. noticed it. I noticed it really huge between like Resolution and Spring, and then from Spring to the Endless. Yeah, and this just seems like a natural progression to them, and I I really want to see them get more work. I think that they are bringing something interesting to the table, but they're not just enamored with just the sci-fi or the spectacle. It's it's about the like you said, brotherhood. It's about human emotion and human connection. And I think that's, that's something that science fiction needs. Um, And the other one I saw back at Cinepocalypse and it is coming out. Well, by the time this episode airs, it will be out. It's called bliss. Oh, I'm so excited for bliss. Oh my God. Mary Beth. It is so good. I've been trying to see it for so long, but every time I reckon I ask for their screener, they're like, Oh, we just took it off the list. Oh, it's so good. Uh, it's you want to talk about vampirism. It mm. uses vampirism as like an idea of of addiction, not only of with drugs, but also the addiction of artists to want to create. It's it's like it is an audio visual cacophony that just keeps going and pulsating, and it's bloody and it's violent and it's loud and it's everything I want in like some kind of crazy horror film. I just, I think it's fantastic. I hope people will find it. I know. I'm so excited to see it. I don't, it's actually coming to my little indie art house theater um, where I live oh, next week. Please go so see it. So I think I'm going to go see it in theaters because, you know, it looks like the kind of film I really want to see in a theater. It is. And, you know, they, they shot it on 16 millimeter Ooh, and then they, it's being played in a bunch of theaters in 35. And if it's coming near you, I, you just do it, do it for me. Go see it because Hello. I have not been able to see it in a theater <laughs> and it kills me because I've only been able to watch it on a screener at my home with my name emblazoned over the front of it. So <laughs> everyone's favorite. Yeah. So yeah, please. I, I've already have it pre-ordered. I can't wait to see it. And I really hope that it comes to your, to the Alamo near me or something that I can, I can go see it. But those awesome. are my two that I cool. really recommend going to check out. Awesome. So now that we've talked about now, 
Should we go back <laughs> to the past? Oh, I guess we kind of have to. That's kind yeah. of the, uh, <laughs> the idea of this podcast, even though. So I brought to the table arachnophobia. Yes. Which, uh, until the last two weeks, I had only seen it one time in my life. And it was when I was 10 years old on a VHS tape that my parents rented. And, oh, man, Mary Beth, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> So this movie, there there are I, people ask me, did this movie give me arachnophobia? Because I have a severe arachnophobia. I have my entire life. And my mm-hmm. answer is no, it did not give me arachnophobia. It just gave me more creative ways to be afraid of them. Oh, God. So <laughs> the the things that, that I remember about this movie before I sat down to rewatch it again. And, and I, again, I've watched it twice in the last week and a half. And wow. I I don't want to ever watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> the things but, you do for podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But so the things that, that stuck out of my mind, there's a couple scenes. First of all is the spider in the cereal box. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. To this day, I don't like to eat food from a box. Oh, my God. Really? Because of that scene? Because of that scene. Okay. Um, so what happened was, it, so a little bit of history. When, when I was a kid, my mom would have this ritual where she would have a bowl of cereal waiting for me in the morning by the time I got downstairs. And after seeing this movie... I didn't want to eat that cereal because I didn't see it get poured out. So A, I didn't know if there was a spider in the box that got poured onto it. Or B, after this movie, I realized that spiders like to crawl into where your food is. So I didn't want it to be just sitting there and a spider come in and be waiting for me. That is what it did to to me. Wow. Um, Do you want to tell us a little bit about arachnophobia for listeners who had never heard of it before? Ah, yes, that's probably a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All right. So arachnophobia is a movie that came out in 1990. It was it's about a species of a South American killer spider that hitches a ride in a coffin after the person that he bit dies. And then it gets to small town America where it starts to breed with a common house spider, multiply and then kills people. Yep. <laughs> it was directed by Frank Marshall, who is known more for two things, being a producer and being married to Kathleen. Gosh, what is her last name? I just completely blanked. Uh, Kathleen Kennedy, who okay. you will know is uh, a mega producer who's, who's in charge of Lucas entertainment now. Yeah. Um, she's produced like almost anything that's, that Steven Spielberg has done. It seems like when Steven Spielberg's an executive producer. Yes. He's film. an executive producer on this film as well. And then it was also written, um, by Don Jacoby and and Wesley Strick, neither of whom have written very many great films since then. <laughs> yeah, so... I, I, uh, and Frank Marshall, I think, is known for Congo. <laughs> yes, okay. That's what, I was looking him up when I was... I guess I had never heard of him. Um, and this is the first time I'd actually seen arachnophobia watching it for this podcast. Because I knew I would not like it as a kid, and so I avoided it like the plague. Yeah, and so I want to the first time I've seen it. Definitely talk to you about that and get your your take on it. But yeah, so th- so that's the movie going into it. And again, there are, are certain scenes that have just stuck in my head. So okay, the cereal box scene was one that yes. stuck with you. Are there any others that really stuck with you as a kid that you couldn't really get out of your head? The one is the lampshade. There is a scene where a lady is is about to go to bed and she reaches up to, to pull down the lamp thing to turn off the light and the spider comes down and bites her and kills her. <sighs> From that moment on, I do not 
I, if I can, I like to plug my lamps into one of those little sockets that is connected to a light switch. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Arachnophobia and, really did like change the way that you interact with objects. Oh, it, it changed how I live my life. Wow. And then the other one that really stuck with me is the ending scene. Um, for those who don't know, there's a scene at the end where they're trapped in the house and the spiders are just coming down on webs from the ceiling. I, awful. Like, I was like, scrunching up and like flailing my hands around because I didn't know it. Like I didn't know how to react to it. It just like made me so itchy. Yes. Itchy is a good, is a good descriptor for this movie. But so I have, I have a recurring dream. I have two. It depends on how I'm sleeping. If I'm sleeping on my side or my back, if I'm sleeping on my side, I will sometimes um, be in that kind of lucid state, you know, where like yeah. you're sort of dreaming and not. And I will see a very large spider on my nightstand that will creep behind whatever's on my desk. And then I will, of course, flip on the light, freak out and not be able to sleep again because I will think that the spider is real. If I'm sleeping on my back, then I will envision the scene from the movie where there's like just a massive amount of spiders coming down from the ceiling on webs. <laughs> oh my God. And this one time when I was, I was probably like 15 or 16 and we had a cat, his name was Feisty and Feisty <laughs> liked to sleep in the bed with me. And there was one time I was sleeping and he was sleeping on my chest on top of the blankets. And I imagine, and I saw these spiders coming down. So I picked him up and threw him off the bed to save him. <gasps> oh, yep. <laughs> And I turn on the light, and of course, there's no spiders on the ceiling. Oh my god, arachnophobia just, like, it scarred you for life. Wow. (laughs) It It really is the epitome of this podcast. It really is. And it's kind of, to be honest, the reason why this podcast kind of exists in this format, because I was talking about this movie on on Twitter. But it it goes from there, like, I can't see spiders on television, I, I... I ended up watching this movie both times, mostly through my fingers, because I don't like oh. seeing spiders anywhere. Um, it makes watching things like anything from She's the Man, where there's a tarantula in that, or yeah. Home Alone. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my it's, God. Yeah. So, okay. So those are scenes, they scared you. Mm-hmm. you. And you kind of already mentioned that you're watching it through your fingers. So what was it like revisiting it now for the first time and since you were 10? So there's a lot that I forgot about it. Okay. I forgot how funny it was. Okay. I didn't expect it to be so funny. Right. John Goodman's John Goodman is in it as a hilarious and ex- like bug exterminator. Yeah. He, he's, he's so funny in this. He's it's perfect casting for him. Yeah. I, so, so that, that kind of surprised me, but like, uh, I guess I- I'm curious what you thought watching this for the first time. So, okay. I kept getting this and eight legged freaks mixed up in my head only oh. because <laughs> they were both spider movies. Yep. Um, and so going into it, I couldn't, I didn't know if it was going to be about like giant, like giant, like kind of cheesy spiders, mm-hmm. but I didn't, this film was actually really creepy for what it is. I mean, I don't necessarily have a fear of spiders. Um, I don't like them necessarily, but like if I see one, I don't kill it right away. I usually know the kind of person um, that picks it up in a paper towel and like tries to put it on the windowsill or something. Mm-hmm. But this movie made me itchy. I actually texted Terry while I was watching it and said, I am so itchy watching this film. <laughs> she did. It was creepy. And I really liked the way they have like the spiders 
not be kind of like comically large. Like this is something that could, I don't think it actually happened, but it's more realistic in a way. Like it's not like a comically large thing, like from eight, like it freaks, but like, you know, just a big spider that somehow made it here and bred with the local, um, arachnids around. And so I was surprised about how much it freaked me out and how gruesome it ended up being. It's, it's pretty gruesome. It's pretty gruesome. Like I didn't expect so many old people to die. My favorite scene was when, like, the, the mortician and his wife were sitting down to watch Wheel of Fortune, and they put, and then there's spiders in the popcorn bowl. <laughs> yep. And then they get bit, and it made me sad. But, like, it really did give me so much anxiety about the way spiders can come into your house. Yes, exactly. And those were, and, like, the spiders they used were, like, big, gross spiders that made sound, like, they I don't know if they just added sound effects, like, to, so there were sounds whenever their little legs hit the ground. So it was, like, little footsteps. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's just too big of a spider for me to handle. Yeah, so they, they <laughs> actually flew them in from uh, New Zealand. They're a, a form of this huntsman spider. <laughs> oh, okay. I thought they looked... Like something I had seen on the internet that gave me kind of nightmares. So that makes sense. Yeah. And when I was watching this with my my brother, he was talking about, he's like, yep, those are the fuckers that I saw in Thailand. It wasn't the exact same because these are are known for for New Zealand, but they're the same kind of species. And so these, these, I know the ones from from, uh, New Zealand are not dangerous to humans. They just are creepy and huge. Yeah, and... Huntsman, those are also in Australia, and I know that they're not dangerous. They're just giant. Mm-hmm. Their bites aren't... I don't even think... I think they have to, like... You know, it's usually that thing, like, you know, if they're scared, they're more scared of you. Right. But Although I can't I don't even believe imagine, that's true with me. Yeah, I can't even imagine, like, flying a bunch of spiders. Like... Right. <laughs> we just corralled, like, a hundred spiders into a box, and we're sending it to the, the States. Like, what... I, I just, like, would hate to be the PA that had to be in charge of that entire right, situation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I, I, I want to say that they flew in, like, 300 of them. No, thank you. Which just seems nuts and terrifying. And I, I was wa- when I was watching it the second time, I was kind of thinking, yeah, there's no way you could have me in this film. Like, there's no way I could film this. I, well, I would I never if, want to be in it. I wonder if Jeff Daniels was really that scared of spiders. I guess you have to, like, if I was a celebrity who was terrified of spiders and a, and a movie made me get covered in spiders, I would probably say no. Yeah, I, I don't care if it would make me famous. There'd be there'd be no way. There'd be no way I could do this movie. Um, Speaking of Jeff Daniels, can we talk about how he's hot in this movie? Right? I was shocked. I, I feel like I always know him as, as a Lloyd from Dumb and Dumber. Yes. And he's just, like, not cute in that. And... I just never really thought of him as like an like you know a hot actor, but he's daddy in this movie. Oh, he is daddy in this movie. <laughs> I mean, he's literally a dad, but also daddy. <laughs> right? No, um, I I thought that too. Looking back on, it, I was like, huh, yeah, he he's uh he's kind of he's kind of cute. He's doing it for me, right? But what I thought was funny is when this there's there's so there's a scene. Um, where they're, cause the idea is that he and his wife and their kids have moved to this, this small town and he's going to be this, this doctor of the town. And of course the doctor he's replacing decides he's not going to retire, which kind of leaves him in a lurch. But when they christen the house, he's like, Oh, we got to get some sexy time. So they start having sex and then it cuts to a scene of the spiders having sex. Did you notice that? 
Oh my god, you even put like wow. <laughs> they're christening the house and then I mean it doesn't show like actual spider sex, but like they're the big spider and the smaller spider are like hunkered down over each other and their legs are kind of like touching each other and I'm like we are seeing spider sex. You and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals slash arachnids. Exactly. <laughs> slash I mean, arachnids. It definitely has a sense of humor about it, mm-hmm. um, which I feel like is necessary when you're making a movie about killer spiders. It has that, like, very much, like, 80s, like late 80s, early 90s horror vibe where it has, like, that really big orchestral soundtrack that makes things feel even more light or spooky, mm-hmm. which I I forgot about those kinds of soundtracks in like bigger budget or in bigger horror movies from that time. Like, I don't know. That was an interesting little touch about how it kind of matched, make, made the mood even bigger throughout the film. It's funny that you say that because um, I my first thought when I first started opening it, because, you know, in the opening of the movie, we're, there, we're going over to South America and they've discovered this sinkhole that people haven't been to and it's been cut off from society for like millions of years. And that's where this, they get the spider from. But as they're in a helicopter flying over the ocean, I'm like, this is Jurassic Park. I literally wrote that down, Terry. I said Jurassic Park reminiscent (laughs) because they, they, they fly a helicopter over a waterfall and they Mm -hmm. have like this beautiful kind of drone shot, not drone, but helicopter shots of those like big South American Rainforest. Yes, I was expecting a bump, 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 bump. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe like Steven Spielberg was involved, and this came out beforehand. Maybe you got it some did. inspo from arachnophobia. Oh my god! <laughs> in fact, I, I mean, when when um, because I did a little bit of research in this because I was curious. Yeah. Steven Spielberg bought the rights to Jurassic Park before it was released. It was released in 1990. So, and he had the he had the. Uh, uh, the rights to it before it even came out. So mm-hmm. he probably knew that he was going to be doing this movie at some point when this movie was being filmed. That's true. Oh, you know, and that makes I, a lot of sense. That makes a lot of I, sense. I mean, like the beginnings are very, very similar. Yeah. And I mean, they even have a line like, what were you expecting? Man eating dinosaurs yes. or something? <laughs> oh man. Um, but yeah, so like, so they, you know, they get the spider, the spider comes to, to town and then I forgot that there is a subplot about him being Dr. Death. Oh, yeah. Like, that becomes a huge point of the story, where every single person that he ends up, like, in- inspecting or giving medical advice to ends up dying. <laughs> so there's po- a podcast called Dr. Death, right? There is. Yeah. You're right. Interesting. Yeah, and everyone kind of jokingly calls him Dr. Death. Mm-hmm. Even the kids. Even the kids. Which... Bunny, that kid. <laughs> Do you remember that? Oh kid that... yeah, the um with the braids. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's right. I forgot her name. Oh man. I'm glad I watched it because I never really had the like. I never really thought about watching it, and I'm glad I had the opportunity to because it really was much more fun than I was expecting. It was um much more tense and scary and enjoyable in a way. It was just like a very good early '90s horror movie like, creature feature. Yeah, um, but- and that's. I That's also kind understand of what I why it too. scared the hell out of you as a kid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the one scene that I completely forgot about going back to the the poor mortician is when it comes out of his fucking nose. Oh my god, yes. No. Uh, no. 
I just um, forget that spiders can hide in places like that. And it just uh, makes me skin out. I'm like looking up at my desk and thinking of all the places they could be. And it's making <laughs> me paranoid. Yeah. And I, I, the notes I wrote down about this movie is why am I putting me myself through this again? <laughs> why do they have to use real spiders? The fucking nose. They, they really did commit. Like, it's not like a cheesy, like, effects like those are just real spiders and that makes even creepier and like the big spider like the kind of the mama spider mm-hmm. is that the mama spider or the papa spider um i think it's the papa spider Papa spider. i think they call him the general that's I think he's <laughs> he's actually really creepy too because you know those kinds those size of those size of spiders they're real like that's they not are. fake which ugh, ugh, i'm, I'm the itchy now. spider from australia yes. yeah i'm mm. itchy now <laughs> um, my back is not very itchy, but yeah, like there's a showdown between Jeff Daniels and the spider, and it's like intense. Even though the spider is like a spider size, it he's a formidable opponent. Yeah, I love I love that scene. That, yeah, that whole ending where he's down there and uh, that gross, disgusting uh, blob of an alien uh, egg sac that's just pulsating. <laughs> They're like at uh, one point they say, "Oh yeah, the egg sac will be the size of a softball and it will be pulsating." I said, "That's not normal. Egg that sacs should pulsate. Why are you being so casual about this pulsating egg sac?" Which, by the way, that egg sac was bigger than a, a, a softball. That was one hundred percent bigger than a softball. But I was, I was, I was nope, I was noping out of that scene. <laughs> <laughs> Even now. <laughs> so basically, the movie still freaked you out. Now. It, it did. Okay. Um, I I can I can appreciate it a bit more, but like I, anytime there was a real spider on screen, I just I literally was either closing my eyes or looking through my fingers trying okay. to to block them out. Um, okay. It just I I have no desire to ever see this movie again. That's fair. <laughs> That's very fair. So what did you think of it when it was over? Did you did you? I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I sprung up out of my chair and um, told my my boyfriend Steve that was so much fun. And he said, yeah, because he had seen it before. He's like, yeah, it's actually a pretty fun movie and creepy. And I was just, you know, happy I had seen it. It was one of those movies that I just felt very happy that I had finally taken the time to watch. And I was very excited to talk about it with you and hear about your experience with it as a kid. Just because, again, this is my first time ever watching it. Mm-hmm. And I, again, I'm not really as scared of spiders. So... I didn't feel the fear. I just, I definitely felt like a very, but I still felt a very visceral reaction to watching it, which I think yeah. is a testament to it. I mean, despite it being from, you said that from 90, 1990, yep, 1990, it still has that effect. I mean, spiders will always be scary and they do spiders in a really good way that isn't cheesy. So I think, you know, it stands up to the test of time, especially now when we have so many good practical effects. Yeah, I, I think it actually has aged very well. I mean, yeah. the, the anatomic spider, maybe not so much when you like see its legs like crawling into the casket or whatever. Yeah. But um, I think but the idea overall, of it just being a giant spider might mm-hmm. definitely eclipsed it for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I think overall, I think I, I think it's it's it stands up. I think it's as effective now. Well, it's obviously for me as effective now as it was when I was a kid. Yeah. And I, I thought it was interesting about it is this this time when I could like look at it more um, critically is how much it follows a slasher convention. It, wow. 
I didn't even think about that, but it definitely does. Because, I mean, the bodies start happening, and instead of, like, a slasher movie where people just don't find the body or, or whatever, yeah. like, they're they're being blamed for, oh, you know, it was a heart attack, it was a heart attack. But, like, the whole scene of the spiders basically stalking them and them jumping out, and then even in the ending where they should be going out the front door, what do they do? They run up the stairs into the, the second floor of the house. I mean, there's just... There's just so many of those kind of conventions, I think, that it was using. That's so cool. I didn't even think about that. That's what happens when you're trying to, like, not pay attention to the movie. Oh, 100%. You're like, <laughs> all right, how can I, like, rationalize this in, like, an academic way or, like, a right. writer way? Yes, no, 100%. I'm very familiar with that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Uh, thanks for giving me the opportunity to watch this movie. Well, <laughs> thanks for uh, for joining me in it because <laughs> it was um, it was something else. So not only did I bring a movie to talk about, but so did you. I did. So the movie I brought um, is the 1982 film Poltergeist, directed by Toby Hooper. Um, this movie wrecked my life as a child. <laughs> um, but basically, this is a family. The story is about a family's home haunted by a host of demonic ghosts, and it sounds simple, but that really is the basic plot. This family of five in a in a kind of like um, one of those communities you see in California where it's like all the houses are the same kind of floor plan. They move into this community, and it's a nice, beautiful family: two daughters, a son, a mom, a dad, a golden retriever. They're putting in a pool in the backyard, and then a ton and Tweety. of. Oh, that's right. Tweety, Tweety the bird. <laughs> Rest in peace forever. And then awful things are happening around the house. The little girl, Carol Ann, gets sucked into the closet into another dimension. Um, and it is about a family's efforts to try to get her back and fight against these, like a host of poltergeists and ghosts that are haunting their home. Whew. Okay. So. I saw this film, I can't even remember how old I was when I saw this movie, but it was something that I think my stepdad was watching, mm -hmm. and I have a very distinct memory of like sitting in his lap, watching it with him on TV, and it made me, and it, I think actually it still has me terrified of closets. I can understand that. Of closets, and a very strange fear of like getting put onto a ceiling, and I will talk more about that later. <laughs> <laughs> so okay the scenes that really like before i rewatch this i haven't rewatched re this in a very long time so it was great to watch it again because it picked up on a lot of things i hadn't picked up when i was younger mm -hmm. but the scenes that really stuck out to me as a kid where of course the iconic scene where the guy's skin starts falling off of his face oh, in the bathroom no. and he's peeling it off the swimming pool scene at the end where the mom is uh, gets stuck in the swimming pool and all of the skeletons start coming up out of the, like, well, the unfinished swimming pool kind of coming up out of the muddy water. Yep. Um, and then another part, at the end of the film really stuck with me, the part where the mom is picked up onto the ceiling and she can't get off the ceiling. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, that image has haunted my nightmares for so long. I have so many recurring nightmares of being, like, lifted up by a ghost and pinned onto the ceiling and not being able Oof. to grab onto anything. And it's a very strange recurring nightmare, but it definitely stuck with me. So closets and getting brought up onto a ceiling by a ghost were, like, the two fears this film really gave me as a kid. I had to sleep with my door open for a long time, <laughs> a hall light on. Yeah, this movie really got into my head as a kid, and so I never wanted to revisit it because it was so awful for me as a child. But revisiting it now, it's still a good movie, but it definitely isn't as scary. 
I don't think, as I thought it was. Yeah. I mean, especially now that I'm an adult, but I don't think parts of it have aged as well as arachnophobia have. <laughs> it's 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 funny like certain movies can can do that for you because um i i i saw this movie when i was a kid too i can't remember how old i was but i was probably like eight or nine when i saw it and it it never really bothered me i just thought it was like cool this is so cool oh, interesting okay yeah so it, it's it's weird how those certain movies can just like trigger something in your brain because i can completely understand especially if you're having uh recurring nightmares about being stuck on the ceiling that that would be terrifying and that's so funny because i feel like that's just that is such a short part of the end and like the part about the tree or the clown doll like never got to me it was the part where the mom was took like was put on the ceiling i guess it's just the idea of not having any control over Mm -hmm. your body definitely stuck with me as a kid and i think i just loved her character the mom character as well but I don't think I really knew what I liked about her. I think I just thought that she was a badass. She um, is a badass. You know, I, she's a badass. I, I love her and I love that she is pretty much, she's kind of the, the hero of the, of the story. She is. Um, the actress is Joe Beth. What is her last name? Joe Beth Williams. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's been in, I think like the biggest thing she was in was Poltergeist. I haven't really seen her in a lot of other stuff, but she really does like carry that movie. She does. She is. I think she's emotional heart of it. And, um, I, I, she, like you said, she turns into a badass by the end. So what did you think of it upon revisiting it? I, I think it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Toby Hooper forever. I mean, like that man, mm-hmm. for those who don't know Toby Hooper, he did the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yes. Among many other films, but that's many a others. big one. <laughs> mm-hmm. It, it kind of reminded me, it, it brought me back. It was very nostalgic rewatching it. Um, yeah. It's probably been about like 10 or 15 years since I've, I've probably seen it. It just, it brought me back to a time of, of childhood where you have like that emblem soundtrack, you know, Jerry Goldsmith composed it. Yeah. And he's of course done everything from alien to the burbs to deep rising to first night, which mm-hmm. we actually performed in a marching band, uh, the music to that <laughs> Amazing. Um, when I was in high school, <laughs> but yeah, so I, it just, it felt just very nostalgic for me and just like a, a wonderful, wonderful time. But I'm curious about about you yeah. rewatching it. So rewatching it, I was able to kind of realize how the practical effects don't age as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the part, especially that made me think that was the tornado scene when it's the scene where this giant tree outside of the kid's window punches in and grabs the sun and starts pulling him into the tree. And then a tornado comes and rips up the tree and it's very, cheesy to me just like the effects of the tornado and that just happens and is never really talked about again right but also i didn't realize just really how crazy it gets immediately like there is like a very quick setup of this family they're very happy and then all of a sudden like even from the very beginning it starts with carol ann the little creepy girl talking to the television so it's never like because sometimes it just goes right into the scary. Mm-hmm. And the scariest parts for me now weren't, were like the moments where they first were discovering the poltergeist when like the chairs were stacked up on the table when the mom looks away. Yeah. Things that like you hear about actually happening with ghosts because ghost stories really affect me. I think that's the kind of the core of it. Ghost stories are the kinds of films, like ghost stories are the kind of horror movies that really get to me because I have like a very big fear of ghosts. I don't know why I have since I was a kid. So, I think those That's moments, interesting. yeah, I think those moments 
that are like more subtle in a way, at least compared mm-hmm. to a lot of the other big kind of set pieces got under my skin more than when I was a kid. So I was, I was going to, I was going to ask you when we were talking about this and this is kind of a good segue. So do you, do you believe in ghosts? I do. You do? Yeah, yeah. I definitely do. Um, I haven't really had like a definitive experience with ghosts mm-hmm. and I'm not a very religious person or I'm not a religious person at all. I don't know why I just, I just believe in ghosts. I was very yeah. into ghost stories as a kid and to ghost hunting shows um, so yeah, I definitely believe in ghosts. Okay. That's yeah. cool. Um, no, I don't okay. think so. I, I don't really, <laughs> I don't really know. Like I, yeah. I, I would, if, if someone came up and showed me proof of it, I'd be like, okay, that I believe it. But like, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't, it's one of those things that I think I have to experience before I'd ever, ever fully believe. But yeah. that said, ghost stories are some of my, are some of my favorites. Like, I love those types of movies, even though I don't necessarily uh, believe in them. Yeah. And I love ghost movies. I think they're because they scare me the most. I think, um, I think they ha- you can be really inventive with them. Yeah. And I also think, I think I'm a very, I just have realized I'm very open-minded. Like I don't say, I wouldn't say I believe in Bigfoot, but I'm open-minded about cryptids. Like <laughs> I don't, think they're real but you know if someone talks to me about them i'll be like oh that's really interesting i just think i try to keep an open mind about all that stuff because i yeah. think it's really fascinating but ghosts i'm much more like yeah those are real definitely <laughs> i've heard too many stories from people i know they're just stories from my family but i just people who i trust and believe who've had experiences that i just don't there ha- i think there's something going on i don't know what but there's something yeah and, and that makes sense yeah um, i i can i can definitely believe that and like I want cryptids to be real. I just, Ugh, I love the idea. So bad. So bad. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm all down for all that kind of supernatural boogie woogie. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. That just I sort like of came it out of my I like supernatural boogie woogie should be a t-shirt. <laughs> I would definitely wear a t-shirt that said supernatural boogie woogie on it. Boogie woogie. <laughs> I think what really stuck with me with Poltergeist was how sad it was to me this time around. Mm, mm-hmm. It was much more upsetting. Like emotionally to me because I guess this is a film where in a lot of, okay, in a lot of these movies it's like the dad is basically like the mom is telling her she's crazy and he's not being supportive, but in this movie the family is very much a unit. Yes. And it's just really awful to see them kind of just falling apart as they're trying to figure out what's going on in their house and how to find Carol Ann after she's sucked into another dimension. And it's just like kind of heartbreaking. They have, um, they immediately reach out to paranormal resources to get help, which is also really interesting. I feel like a lot of times in these films, the dad is like, absolutely not. But in this, we see the dad immediately, who's played by a very attractive young Craig T. Nelson. Oh Um, my gosh. What is it with the attractive men in these movies right right now? But immediately bringing in like a paranormal research team and seeing how beaten down this family is. And it's really like emotionally and more emotionally intense than I remember, which I liked a lot. Um, I think it made me like the movie even more just with the way that it's written to be like this family unit together is falling apart. There isn't, it's not tearing itself apart from the inside. It's more just like the ghosts are what's tearing it apart. Yeah. You can definitely see Steven Spielberg's hand in the screenplay. Yeah, for sure. There's like, uh, and I mean, I, I know that there's like a bunch of discussion as to whether who really directed it. I don't really care one way or the other. It's a great movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? 
but like you can definitely tell Stephen King's hand or Stephen King, my gosh, Steven Spielberg's <laughs> Stephen King. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can really see Steven Spielberg's influence on the scripts and on the story because of the way the family unit works and how it's yes. a very kind of stereotypical American nuclear family. It really is. And I, th- I think the one thing that um, I, I, looking back on it now that I, I think about is how this, this eighties, the eighties kind of, took the horror from being like either rural or urban and brought it to this, you know, suburban uh, landscape that still is pretty fucked up because again, we've literally built America on the bodies of the indigenous population. Yeah. And so actually I wrote, I've done a lot about that because I was paying a lot of attention to that because in the very beginning, Craig T. Nelson's character is reading a book about Ronald Reagan. Yes. Um, I'm glad you bring that up. So, it's like very much set up to be a film kind of about the destruction of Ronald Reagan's America. Mm-hmm. Ronald Reagan just kind of embodied this very kind of conservative back to gen- like basic gender role way of living nuclear family kind of just like the way that America should be like middle America slash suburban America should be this way. Mm-hmm. And so the film is set up that way. It's a suburban community. They have the golden retriever. They have like, you know, the three kids and he's reading this biography about Ronald Reagan, but they're also rolling. They really do create this image of Ronald Reagan's America. And then they immediately tear it apart, especially at the end with the entire community basically being, destroyed by ghosts because if you haven't seen the film sorry it's from 1982 so spoilers abound here yep they built this i think it's called cuesta verde this community Mm -hmm. on an old cemetery and they moved the headstones but they didn't move the corpses you son of a bitch you (laughs) moved the cemetery but you left the bodies lies lies you only moved the headstones like headstones start sprouting out of the ground like oh my God. it's so good yeah like you said america and suburban america is built on dead bodies of indigenous people and it isn't necessarily that kind of native burial ground trope that can get kind of icky but this one is just like you just did you were lazy and moved headstones but build a community on dead bodies and now they're pissed off mm-hmm. and, and you can escape the urban you can escape that but you still are living in the grounds of america that has done terrible things yeah and then also the star spangled banner plays twice like at the end like in the when the tv goes static at mm-hmm. night and it really is a fascinating look at that kind of destruction of the domestic way of life of the early 80s which Obviously, was lost on me as a child. Yeah, but same. After doing, I've done research on this before, like for previous stuff in school, and so it was really fascinating to see the film as this kind of like very obvious political commentary in a way. Which I get, guys. Horror is political. Let's talk. Horror about is it. political. <laughs> yeah, you, you can't not be political. Exactly. So that was something that really stuck out to me. Was kind of that whole indictment of Reagan's America not in the film. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's something that was completely, of course, lost on me as a kid. I just, I, I just love the special effects. Yeah. Um. <laughs> and of course you get lost in that when you, anyone does. I mean, especially when you have like crazy closet monsters and you have weird ghosts, it's, it's easy for that kind of message to maybe get lost in the shuffle just because, you know, and then when they all come out of the ceiling covered, in that jelly. Oh my God. We love a birth metaphor. 
Oh, I know. It, it was so, it's so gross. It still kind of grosses it's me out disgusting. to this day. It still disgusts me. Like, they're uh-huh. just covered in jelly. And he's, like, wiping their mouths. And he's, like, breathe. And I said, oh, the Ooh. birth. The birthing metaphor is here. So yep. weird. But it's so icky. And I don't know why the jelly freaks me out still. But it just gives me a gross feeling. That The whole, the whole ending sequence is just... Uh, that that whole like getting her out and and throwing the tennis balls in and the tennis balls come out covered in goo and the rope comes out covered in goo the whole thing just and now that you mentioned the the birthing aspect of it the the rope kind of being like an umbilical cord yes. I mean there's a lot of that kind of imagery in it that I I just now realized after you were talking and also this is a segue to bring up my queen Zelda Rubenstein who plays uh... Tangina. Um, I am wearing her on my chest right now on my Poltergeist shirt from Super Yaki. I love her forever. She is the best part of the movie. She is the best part of the movie. She's so good. I know I've heard that she hates anyone quoting this on her, which I get because I feel like I would get annoyed if people came up to me and just said, this house is clean or all are welcome. <laughs> I'd be like, all right, I get it. But she's so good in this movie. She just has this like good aura of just kind of like creepy, all knowing, but also weirdly comforting. Yes. I just really have a much deeper appreciation for her character, not as kind of a joke, but as a really cool figure. And she has some of the best lines. She does. Like they're like, now let's go get your daughter. Or the moment when my favorite moment and I laughed so hard watching this again was when um they're they're going in to get her and she's like, I'll go and the mom's like, no, I'm gonna go and she's like, you've never done this before. Neither have you. (laughs) And then she's like, you're right. You go. (laughs) Um also I just discovered that we share the same birthday. <gasps> really? May 28th, me and Zelda. So um, she's my queen. <laughs> it's meant to be. Oh, she, she's only four foot three. But she also was apparently had a long career as a lab technician. And then really? at age 45, she decided, I want to be an actress. Good for her. Good for her. That's awesome. That's so cool. It, so the one thing that, that kind of struck me this time, now when you when you mentioned that she was four foot three, was... I forgot how much of a bigot coach is in this. Like how oh, yeah. he makes a comment about like her being a, a dwarf and like, are we on the, uh, are we, she called, he basically calls her munchkin is like, what side of the rainbow yeah. are we on? But my favorite I'm is like, he's hmm. like, she kind of refutes it immediately. He's like, I thought she was a clairvoyant and whispers it and she goes, I am. I just don't fall for stupid trick questions. Yes. And I was like, I, girl, I, she's queen. Exactly. And I feel like they had, they, you know, because it's the eighties, they had to have some like comment on her size and her voice. Right. But then she immediately was like, uh, uh-uh, absolutely not. And then they she's have like, the funny, bitch. she kind of has that funny joke where she has the mom come up to her and she says, I'm getting whiplash from looking up there. Can you kneel down? <laughs> yes. And I was like, I feel like they had that really weird biggity moment, but then immediately were like, absolutely not. No way. Like, I know the jokes that people probably think, but she's above that, which I mm-hmm. really was happy about because I couldn't remember like how much they made fun of that, which I'm glad they kind of tried to avoid. For me, she's kind of an icon, and I would even be fair to say that she might be a gay icon, because (laughs) the way she says this house is clean, and then does this kind of, like, bitch pose, just really, like, I was like, oh, yes, queen, you go. Is she camp with her giant sunglasses? I think she is. (laughs) Is she camp? 
I think so. You heard it here. Zelda Rubenstein is a campy gay queen. <laughs> I think so. That that is my that is my point. Cool. Also, the girl. Let's talk about the daughter really mm. fast. Carolyn. Uh, no, the other one, Dana. Dana. Oh, I. This is my problem. I forgot Dana was even in this movie, and now I have forgotten again. So I, I do too because she's really not in it much. But the two scenes that she has are fantastic. She has that little, I'm going to do this very over the top, flicking you off movement. Yes, with the creepy guys that? harassing her. I was like, yes. she must do the macarena. I was like, ooh, girl. But then my favorite part is at the very end when they're talking about, you know, we're not staying here tonight. We're going to stay at the Holiday Inn on I-74. And she's like, oh, yeah, I remember that place. <laughs> I'm like, oh, <laughs> bitch. She getting lucky in the I-74 Holiday Inn. She's just like... She has like these really great moments, and it, it it's sad to me that there are moments where like she doesn't really um she doesn't get to shine as much as like the younger kid characters. So she definitely has right. a couple good like more subtle lines. Well, I thought it was interesting that she's the first person to leave. You know, they send her packing, but not the the boy Robbie. Okay, like, boy Robbie also gets put into a yellow taxi with the golden retriever by himself. <laughs> I know. I was like. What the 80s were a wild time. Wild time. Wild time. And I, I was like, where is where is he going? Why why isn't why isn't he with his sister? Where <laughs> <laughs> who is she staying with? Is she staying at the Holiday Inn too? I think she had a boyfriend. <laughs> yeah. 80s, man. Oh, the 80s were wild. The scene, I guess like going back to the things that I found scary as a kid, mm-hmm. the scene where he pulls off his face was definitely not as like, not as creepy and it was so gross, but it was obviously much it was obviously like a mask and stuff. But the grossest part I didn't even remember was when he was pulling meat out of the fridge and the meat starts inching along oh, the counter. My and God. that was creepier to me than when he pulls off his face. It just kind of starts creeping in the dark and then it bursts open and then the maggots come out the of the chicken. The maggots and the chicken that he was having. And that was creepier to me this time around than when he pulls off his face because that's obviously gross and like really cool effects. But again, like very 80s, like creep showy effects mm-hmm. um it also reminded me of a movie that steven spielberg was involved with that comes out in a couple years after this movie called um young sherlock holmes have you seen that i haven't actually no so like there's a scene in it where um these characters like the idea is that there's this guy going around shooting people up with these darts that make them hallucinate until they die and there's a scene <laughs> where like one of the people hallucinates and like the food starts to get up and like starts throwing itself down his throat Ooh, but no it- thank you <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it's like it almost looks like that you know let's go to the lobby and get ourselves a snack like yes. those food yes 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 and so I'm watching that and I'm like man this is like that except a little bit more steaky and gory <laughs> but like, like meat and viscera <laughs> yeah but it just reminded me how like how much this movie kind of had an f- effect on on movies that came afterwards and even I'm thinking back to the scene that got you with with uh, the mom on the on the ceiling. Mm-hmm. Kind of reminded me a little bit of Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh yeah, with with uh, Tina's death in the beginning. Yeah, and so I had written down before I watched Poltergeist today. I wrote down the three scenes that were stuck in my head, and the mom on the ceiling. It, this didn't happen until like the last ten minutes, and I was wondering yeah. for the longest time if I had just completely misremembered this film. Right? I was like, oh god, like I'm totally misremembering this. I'm conflating it with another movie, and then 
all the, most of the things that happened, like I said, that scared me were at the end. So I'm wondering if I just kind of blocked out the rest of it, or maybe the first time I saw it, I didn't see the whole thing. I have no idea. But the like the ending was what really scared me as a kid. And they, they pack so much into that last they like really 15 do. minutes. They're so good at being like, oh, she got her, she got Carol in out of the weird like ghost portal. Everything's fine. Mm-hmm. This house is clean. Sure isn't Zelda. Yeah, Zelda. You give your little your little fancy pose, but you didn't do <laughs> this shit. This is clean. No, it's not. No, it's not. There's a scary, creepy monster coming out of it. There's a clown. I mean, the clown scene happens at the very end. That the... iconic, weird monster that comes out of their bedroom door. I don't oh even gosh. know how to describe that monster. I don't either. Shaggy dog monster. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good way to put it. I was like, I don't even know how to describe this thing. But a lot of the most iconic images in my head came from... Either the very beginning when she has her hands on the TV or Mm -hmm. at the end, which is so fascinating because there's a lot that happens in the middle that's very good, but there really is. It is like a nonstop ride though. I forgot like that it just doesn't, once it starts going, it doesn't. Once it starts, it doesn't. Yeah, it's like it's like a roller coaster. Yeah, um, and I I just I love the the last ten minutes where you have like the Sarlacc tentacle coming out of the closet oh my door, God, the giant vagina. <laughs> the, the, which, if you're taking the birthing metaphor, so you got birthed, and now we're getting stuck back in it. And like, then, like the weird tongue is like, <laughs> yep. It's, oh. oh, as man. if this poor family hasn't been through enough. <laughs> Right. Literally, and my last note is get these kids therapy with three oh, exclamation points. At least three exclamation points. <laughs> One for each but kid. <laughs> what a perfect shot, though, the, at the very end where they're in the ho- hotel and the door closes, <laughs> then opens. He pushes out the TV, oh slams the door, and we're done. Right? And also, this is a really interesting film about kind of the beginning of tv i mean i know it's at the Mm beginning 1980s is not the beginning of tv but you know it's when they started being more popular yeah like in in every house there was that interesting part at the beginning where the him the neighbors they all share somehow share a remote and like with one of them changes the channel it changes the channel in the other house which is a problem i have never experienced in my life (laughs) as a millennial um and there is a lot of really interesting discussion about like television and kind of the weird power of television in a very yeah. fascinating way. This would actually be a very interesting double feature with Videodrome. Or also, I would also say the uh, the remake. And no, I'm not talking about Poltergeist remake. I'm talking about Insidious. <laughs> I think Insidious is kind of a remake Ooh, of this movie. That's a good point. Okay, I love Insidious. Insidious oh, scared the so absolute crap out of me. As like, oh, me too. I screamed. I never scream watching movies, but that movie made me scream. It made me scream too. There's a couple of really killer jump out moments in there that. Really but, I mean, are. it's obvious that he pulled from this movie because oh, it has a yes. very similar structure. Yeah, it doesn't get pulled into a, a a closet, but they're gone to this other realm, and yeah, there's just a lot of a lot of that ideas. So talked about arachnophobia. Talked about Poltergeist. We've let yes. people know who we are as hosts. Yes. Thanks for listening, guys. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's it. We're done. We're, done. We're out of here. Bye. <laughs> but so you've heard from us and um, and with this episode and, uh, you know, I, I hope you you enjoyed it because, um, you know, we're, we're starting this out and, yeah. you know, it might be a little bit rough around the edges, but we'll we'll get there. We will. But we're curious. We want to hear from you. What's your experience with either arachnophobia or poltergeist? Uh, if have you did it scare you as a kid? Do you have any fun stories? 
If you do, send us an email at scarredforlifepodcast.gmail.com, and we might feature you in an upcoming episode. You can also reach out to us on Twitter. Uh, the podcast is Scarred Podcast, and I'm at Gailey Dreadful. And I'm at MB McAndrews. And as always, please rate, review, subscribe, and follow us on Twitter. We want to personally thank Steve Barnold for our art and Sean Keller for our killer song. So thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Stay creepy. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com